to a magnificent roar. It was the voice of the city, of a nation. It was the voice of a people crying out the strife and the agony of the year, pealing forth a prayer for the future. Glenn had put his lips to her ear. It's like the voice in my soul. Never would she forget the shock of that, and how she had stood spellbound, enveloped in the mighty volume of sound, no longer discordant, but full of great pregnant melody, until the white ball burst upon the tower of the Times building, showing the bright figures 1919. The new year had not been many minutes old when Glenn Kilburn had told her he was going west to try to recover his health. Carly roused out of her memories to take up the letter that had so perplexed her. It bore the postmark, Flagstaff, Arizona. She reread it with slow, pondering thoughtfulness. West Fork, March 25th. Dear Carly, it does seem my neglecting writing you is unpardonable. I used to be a pretty fair correspondent, but in that, as in other things, I have changed. One reason I've not answered sooner is because your letter was so sweet and loving that it made me feel an ungrateful and unappreciative wretch. Another is that this life I now lead does not induce writing. I'm outdoors all day, and when I get back to this cabin at night, I'm too tired for anything but bed. Your imperious questions I must answer, and that must, of course, is a third reason why I have delayed my reply. First you ask, don't you love me any more as you used to? Frankly, I do not. I'm sure my old love for you before I went to France was selfish, thoughtless, sentimental, and boyish. I'm a man now, and my love for you is different. Let me assure you that it has been about all left to me of what is noble and beautiful. Whatever the changes in me for the worse, my love for you at least has grown better, finer, purer. And now for your second question. Are you coming home as soon as you're well again? Carly, I am well. I've delayed telling you this because I knew you would expect me to rush back east with the telling. But the fact is, Carly, I'm not coming just yet. I wish it were possible for me to make you understand. For a long time I seem to have been frozen within. You know, when I came back from France, I couldn't talk. It's almost as bad as that now. Yet all that I was then seems to have changed again. It's only fair to you to tell you that, as I feel now, I hate the city. I hate people, and particularly, I hate that dancing, drinking, lounging set you chase with. I don't want to come east until I'm over that, you know. Suppose I never get over it. Well, Carly, you can free yourself from me by one word that I could never utter. I could never break our engagement. During the hell I went through in the war, my attachment to you saved me from moral ruin, if it did not from perfect honor and fidelity. This is another thing I despair of making you understand. And in the chaos I've wandered through since the war, my love for you was my only anchor. You never guessed, did you, that I lived on your letters until I got well. And now the fact that I might get along without them is no discredit to their charm or to you.
It is also hard to put in words, Carly. To lie down with death and get up with death was nothing. To face one's degradation was nothing. But to come home, an incomprehensibly changed man, and to see my old life as strange as if it were the new life of another planet, to try to slip into the old groove, well, no words of mine can tell you how utterly impossible it was. My old job was not open to me, even if I had been able to work. The government that I fought for left me to starve or to die of my maladies like a dog, for all it cared. I could not live on your money, Carly. My people are poor, as you know. So there was nothing for me to do but to borrow a little money from my friends and to come west. I'm glad I had the courage to come. What this west is, I'll never try to tell you, because loving the luxury and excitement and glitter of the city as you do, you'd think I was crazy. Getting on here in my condition was as hard as trench life. But now, Carly, something has come to me out of the West. That, too, I'm unable to put into words. Maybe I can give you an inkling of it. I'm strong enough to chop wood all day. No man or woman passes my cabin in a month. But I'm never lonely. I love these vast red canyon walls towering above me. And the silence is so sweet. Think of the hellish din that filled my ears. Even now, sometimes, the brook here changes its babbling murmur to the roar of war. I never understood anything of the meaning of nature until I lived under these looming stone walls and whispering pines. So, Carly, try to understand me, or at least be kind. You know, they came very near writing, Gone West, after my name, and considering that, this Out West signifies for me a very fortunate difference, a tremendous difference. For the present, I'll let well enough alone. Adios. Write soon. Love. From Glenn. Carly's second reaction to the letter was a sudden upflashing desire to see her lover, to go out west and find him. Impulses with her were rather rare and inhibited, but this one made her tremble. If Glenn was well again, he must have vastly changed from the moody, stone-faced, and haunted-eyed man who had so worried and distressed her. He had embarrassed her, too, for sometimes in her home, meeting young men there who had not gone into the service, he had seemed to retreat into himself, singularly aloof, as if his world was not theirs. Again, with eager eyes and quivering lips, she read the letter. It contained words that lifted her heart. Her starved love greedily absorbed them. In them she had excuse for any resolve that might bring Glenn closer to her, and she pondered over this longing to go to him. Carly had the means to come and go and live as she liked. She did not remember her father, who had died when she was a child. Her mother had left her in the care of a sister, and before the war they had divided their time between New York and Europe, the Adirondacks and Florida. Carly had gone in for Red Cross and relief work with more of sincerity than most of her set. But she was really not used to making any decision as definite and important as that of going out west alone. She had never been further west than Jersey City, 
and her conception of the West was a hazy one of vast plains and rough mountains, squalid towns, cattle herds, and uncouth, ill-clad men. So she carried the letter to her aunt, a rather slight woman with a kindly face and shrewd eyes, and who appeared somewhat given to old-fashioned garments. "'Aunt Mary, here's a letter from Glenn,' said Carly. "'It's more of a stumper than usual. Please read it.' "'Dear me, you look upset,' replied the aunt, mildly, and adjusting her spectacles, she took the letter. Carly waited impatiently for the perusal conscious of inward forces coming more and more to the aid of her impulse to go west. Her aunt paused once to murmur how glad she was that Glenn had gotten well. Then she read on to the close. "'Carly, that's a fine letter,' she said fervently. "'Do you see through it?' Uh, "'No, I don't,' replied Carly. "'That's why I ask you to read it.' Well, do you still love Glenn as you used to uh, before? Why, Aunt Mary, exclaimed Carly in surprise. Excuse me, Carly, if I'm blunt. But the fact is, young women of modern times are very different from my kind. When I was a girl, you haven't acted as though you pined for Glenn. You gad around almost the same as ever. What's a girl to do? protested Carly. You're twenty-six years old, Carly retorted Aunt Mary. Suppose I am. I'm as young as I ever was. Well, let's not argue about modern girls and modern times. We never get anywhere, returned her aunt kindly. But I can tell you something of what Glenn Kilburn means in that letter, if you want to hear it. I do, indeed.